Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. An update on the FBI's search of former President Trump's home. The judge says the government's arguments to keep a key document sealed aren't good enough. He wants more evidence. A nonprofit has the data of over 50 million voters. A new report says that some lawmakers aren't allowed to have access to that data, and it says the nonprofit has a political bias. A new report is raising serious concerns over the integrity of Florida elections. Election supervisors in the state were surveyed to find out more about the election practices at the local level. We have the latest update on the FBI's raid of former President Trump's home. A judge ruled today that the government hasn't proven that a key document should remain sealed from the public. And today's Jessica Beatty has more. U.S. officials claim the affidavit for the warrant, which convinced the judge to approve the warrant, needs extensive redaction to protect FBI agents and witnesses, as well as the ongoing investigation into Trump. They argue there's no point on sealing a version that's blacked out because there'd be nothing of substance left. But in a new ruling Monday, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt says those arguments aren't good enough, at least not yet. Judge Reinhardt said, I cannot say at this point that partial redactions will be so extensive that they'll result in a meaningless disclosure. But I may ultimately reach that conclusion after hearing further from the government. Reinhardt ordered the government to file more evidence to support keeping the entire document under seal. He also wants proposed redactions to the document. He'll review the proposals and either reject them or agree with them. If he rejects them, the government will have a chance to appeal to a higher court. If he agrees with them, he'll release the redacted document. Meanwhile, former Pentagon Chief of Staff Kash Patel says documents that were stored at Mar-a-Lago and marked classified were declassified when former President Trump left office. Patel told the Wall Street Journal that officials will have a hard time proving that those documents weren't declassified. In the interview published Sunday, Patel said the bottom line is that Trump wanted to get the information out to the public. Although Patel said he didn't know exactly what was in the boxes the FBI took from Trump's home, he said it had to do with Russiagate and the Hillary Clinton email scandal. Patel's comments challenge a central claim made by the Justice Department that urgent action had to be taken because sensitive material was at risk. So far, neither the DOJ nor the FBI have offered a public explanation about why they searched a former president's home or what they were looking for. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. This just in, Dr. Anthony Fauci is stepping down from three government positions he holds. He announced today that he's planning to leave them in December. The positions he's resigning from are director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, chief of the Laboratory of Immunoregulation, and chief medical advisor to the President Biden. He indicated that he will leave the government but not retire. Fauci is 81 years old. He has repeatedly hinted he would step down from his positions but has not committed to a specific time for resigning before. Republicans have vowed to investigate Fauci and other architects of U.S. pandemic policy if they gain control of either or both congressional chambers in the upcoming midterm elections. A left-leaning nonprofit allegedly has more access to voter data than some states. That's according to a new report. Here's more. When someone moves or dies, that person has to be removed from the registered voter's role so their name can't be used to vote. This is usually handled at the county or state level. 
But today, 33 states and Washington, D.C. are outsourcing parts of this task to the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC for short, which handles the data of over 50 million Americans. The founder of ERIC, David Becker, also founded the Center for Election Integrity and Research, or CEIR. CEIR calls claims that the 2020 election was fraudulent the big lie and says that the GOP and Trump supporters are pushing harmful, unnecessary new election laws. In 2020, CEIR received nearly $70 million from the left-leaning Zuckerberg Chan Initiative. Member states give ERIC more than voter registration records. By agreement, they also hand over all records of individuals who went to places where people are given a chance to register to vote, like the DMV, mental health offices, and more. The Verify Votes report found that because voter registration is offered in these places, all personal information is shared with ERIC, even if the individual did not register to vote. In September, Pennsylvania GOP lawmakers investigated the 2020 election. They subpoenaed the Pennsylvania Department of State, requesting detailed voter lists, including name, date of birth, driver's license number, and more. The Democratic governor and others went to court to block access, citing protection of voters' personal information. In court papers, the Department of State argued that it cannot provide the information to investigators because bad actors who gain access to this information would have all the data they need to control the voters' registrations and even their votes. Verify Vote notes in its report that the Department of State was comfortable sharing data about voters and citizens who have chosen not to register to vote with Zuckerberg-funded CEIR, but went to court to keep that data from the Pennsylvania Senate. NTD reached out to CEIR and ERIC for comment, but neither one got back before broadcast. And now on to the topic of election integrity. A recent report has raised serious concerns over this in Florida. Here are the details. Floridians for Election Transparency, or FFET, recently released a report which was obtained exclusively by the Epoch Times. The report shows that election security is inconsistent across Florida and says violations of Florida election laws raise serious concerns. The supervisors of elections in 18 of the state's 67 counties agreed to participate. All expressed confidence that their voter lists are accurate, and 39 percent said they were concerned about media influencing the confidence of the public. FFET asked the election supervisors how often they updated their voter rolls. The answers range from every two years to every four months. The report also highlights that Florida is one of 25 states that allows third-party voter registration. This means rather than allowing only in-person registrations, non-government organizations can also register voters. Asked if they are confident that third-party registration takes place without bribery, intimidation, or coercion, and are confident that only qualified voters are registered through these third parties, only 44% of the election supervisors said yes. On other topics, FFET got widely varying answers. Most counties ordered some extra ballots for Election Day, three ordered less than the number of registered voters, and one said they print them on demand. Most of the election supervisors didn't know how many poll watchers were present. Only a fifth said they had poll watchers from both parties at every polling place. FFET also found the counties had different ways of handling nursing homes. Several said they sent blank ballots to nursing homes and collected them later. FFET also asked if voting machines are ever connected to the Internet. Thirteen of them said no, while five said yes. Following the investigation, FFET made several suggestions to Florida authorities. 
They include a comprehensive voter registration audit, only allowing in-person voter registration and counting the ballots manually. A federal appeals court has blocked a subpoena that would have made Senator Lindsey Graham testify before a Georgia grand jury investigating the 2020 election. A lower court will now have to determine the fate of the subpoena. A U.S. District Judge ruled several days ago that Graham had to testify before a grand jury. That's in connection with former President Donald Trump's election-related efforts in Georgia after the 2020 election. Fonnie Willis is Fulton County's District Attorney. She wrote in court filings that the grand jury required Graham's testimony about two calls he allegedly made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. She says that Graham called Raffensperger and his staff to have them re-examine certain absentee ballots to explore a more favorable outcome for Trump. According to Graham and his attorneys, the subpoena would violate the Constitution's speech and debate clause for lawmakers. Graham told Fox News weeks ago that those protections are absolute and that Congress members can't be compelled to testify in small matters that would disrupt the legislative branch's operations. A new national poll shows fewer voters in the U.S. identify themselves as liberal. That's according to research by Morning Consult on about 8 million voters since 2017. The liberal category of the electorate dropped 7% over the last five years. It's now at 27%. Hispanic voters are a major driver of the shift. Our next guest is a trilingual mother of four and a former Miss World of Columbia. She now advocates for parental rights. We hear some of the concerns that she says Latinos have about public education in the states. Joining us now to discuss the Hispanic vote is Catalina Stube, who is the director of Hispanic Outreach for the parents group Moms for Liberty. Pleasure speaking with you, Catalina. Thank you, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing well. And I want to know, in your view, what is the most important issue for Hispanic parents and families right now? I think it's two main issues. One is the economic and another is the education of our children, which, which I'm very concerned because um, I have myself four children and I see the indoctrination firsthand. And um, we, the Latinos, are really uh, preoccupied about real issues. It's, uh, we, we see everyday inflation. We see everyday the indoctrination on our children. So it's pretty much easy to see and put up the balance where our priorities and what they are their, their priorities, the left uh, radical agenda priorities. So you mentioned education. What is your reaction to K through 12 lesson plans that children are taught to explore identities like gender identities, like non-binary, et cetera, in San Diego schools? It's it's a dis, it's disgracious. This this not supposed to happen. Uh, you you have to teach children about, for example, putting a, a helmet when riding a, a bike. Not talking about educational sex in a young age. Example: uh, how to put a a, a condom uh, on an eight year old. Or, or you can uh, change your sex, or all these gender ideologies pushing to, to our children are wrong. This pure child abuse, this is not appropriate for our children. So we absolutely reject all these gender ideologies. And for example, in Washington, D.C., students are being taught to check white privilege and even identify so-called racist members of their family. What do you make of this? 
is is exactly the same. It's always the, this radical left agenda that they they were pushing. That is their priority. Our priority is to have uh, confident children, is to have happy children, to reach our American dream, to defend our values of faith, family, and freedom. And they are not supporting that. Do you see these midterms as anything different for the Hispanic voters, for example, compared to other midterms? Uh, th this is it's a swing uh, um, vote right now, and it's increasing every day. And, and if you see, it's not only for the Hispanic community, it's also for the black community, the Asian community. I think everyone pretty much in general, they are swinging to the to the Republicans because at least they, they are uh, more aligned to our values. They are defending family. And, uh, and the other, while the other, they are just uh, giving more money to Ukraine and to other countries instead to uh, invest in our country, in our own country. They spend billions of dollars outside. Imagine all this money put in, in, the, in our education. Catalina, can you give us a little more background on how you got to the position you're in now and what motivated you? Well, my motivation was very personal. I see firsthand the indoctrination of our children. I didn't appreciate the mask on my children, especially when I have a young uh, boy uh, learning for the first time English, and then you cannot see the, the, the face of the other person because someone that is not a physician decide to put a mask on them. So uh, we see we see how the the teacher union is changing everything and closing uh, schools and not taking care of the the parent opinion. We uh, we 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 get neglected in 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 this part of education of our children. And we are the ones who decide about everything in the education of our children and the health of our children and everything. Very interesting insight into the Hispanic vote. Catalina Stube, Moms for Liberty, thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Coming up, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has met with Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen on a four-day trip to the island. The two endorsed further cooperation on the economic front, especially chip manufacturing. And the U.S. and South Korea have launched their largest joint military exercise in five years. The operation is designed to deter threats from North Korea. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. Records show that the fence surrounding President Biden's Delaware Beach House is costing taxpayers about $500,000. In September 2021, Homeland Security paid about $450,000 to a Delaware-based company for the installation. Another bill of almost $7,000 was paid in November 2021 to cover more services. In June, another $27,000 was added to the bill. The overall cost of the fence now stands at over $490,000. Although the project was originally expected to be completed by the end of 2021, its potential end date has been pushed back to June 2023. 
Amid a record influx of illegal crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border, the costly fence has drawn mockery from critics of the president's border policy. They're criticizing him for building a fence around his home, but not supporting a fence at the U.S.-Mexico border, where illegal immigration is breaking records. NTD reached out to the Department of Homeland Security, the agency awarding the contract, but did not hear back before broadcast. The U.S. Border Patrol says more than two dozen people from Cuba were taken into custody after landing in the Florida Keys over the weekend. According to a patrol agent, 31 Cubans landed in the Marquesas Islands and another 10 came ashore in Isla Meralda. The patrol reported no injuries. Agents took one man into custody after he made landfall on an inflatable kayak. All are expected to be repatriated to Cuba. The U.S. Coast Guard reports more than 4,400 Cubans have been intercepted since October 2021. And down on the U.S. southern border, a new report says nearly 5 million illegal immigrants have crossed in the 18 months since President Biden took office. That's a little less than the entire population of Ireland. The numbers come from a report by the Federation for American Immigration Reform. After rolling back Trump-era policies, Biden presided over over almost 1.9 million arrests of illegal immigrants at the U.S.-Mexico border last year. That was the largest number of apprehensions in a calendar year, but we've already surpassed it this year. Here are the most recent updates from July. Customs and Border Protection reported that 10 individuals in the FBI's terror watch list were apprehended, bringing total for the current fiscal year since last October to 66. The agency also seized over 2,000 pounds of the synthetic opioid fentanyl just last month. That's enough to kill every single American and then a whole lot more. It tops the previous monthly record of nearly 1,300 pounds in April. Ford is facing over $1.7 billion in damages over a fatal accident involving its F-250 pickup. A Georgia jury reached a verdict in the case that left two people dead. The jury determines that damages should be imposed for selling 5.2 million Super Duty trucks. Attorneys said the truck's roofs were dangerously weak and they would crush passengers in a rollover accident. Melvin and Von Seal Hill were driving a 2002 Ford F-250 when their right front tire blew and the truck rolled over. The hills were crushed inside. A Ford spokesman said, quote, while our sympathies go out to the Hill family, we don't believe the verdict is supported by evidence and we plan to appeal. Ford Motor Company has issued 49 recalls this year, the most of any automaker. This verdict is believed to be one of Georgia's biggest in history. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has arrived in Taiwan for a four-day visit. This trip comes at a tense time for Taiwan, China, and the United States. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen calls for further cooperation along the Allies. Taiwan is willing and able to strengthen cooperation with democratic partners in building sustainable supply chains for democracy chips. Taiwan has been confronted by military threats from China in and around the Taiwan Strait. At this moment, democratic allies must stand together and boost cooperation across all areas. Because we share so many common values and interests and goals, there are more opportunities ahead of us than I think there ever have been before for us to continue to strengthen and cultivate and nurture uh, this relationship as our economies grow and grow together. 
Holcomb's office says his visit will focus on economic exchanges, particularly on semiconductors. The two leaders agreed that Taiwan's chip manufacturing plays a vital role in global supply chains. They addressed partnerships between Indiana universities and Taiwanese chip makers. The governor is set to meet with representatives of the Taiwanese semiconductor industry next. His trip is the third visit to Taiwan by a senior U.S. government official this month, following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's and Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey's. Their trips have drawn the ire of Beijing. The regime conducted days of live fire drills near the island of Taiwan earlier this month. The U.S. and South Korea kicked off their largest joint military exercises since 2017. The drills are designed to deter North Korea's provocative actions. The exercises, known as Ulchi Freedom Shield, will comprise computer-simulated command post exercises, field training, and civil defense drills. The two allies plan to conduct 13 joint field training sessions. That's before the operation ends on September 1st. Pyongyang has denounced the drills as a so-called rehearsal for an invasion. Last week, in response to the drills' preliminary training, North Korea fired two cruise missiles from its west coast. So far this year, the regime has made multiple missile launches in violation of U.N. resolutions. These include one involving its largest intercontinental ballistic missile. South Korea's newly inaugurated president, Yoon Suk-yeol, is taking a tougher stance on its northern neighbor. He is also seeking a stronger U.S. security commitment to the country's defense. In northern Australia, a massive multinational air force drill dubbed Pitch Black is also underway. Germany, Japan and South Korea are three first-timers among the 17 countries taking part. Exercise Pitch Black had been held every two years since 1981. After a four-year hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it's making a comeback and will run through September 8th. According to a statement from the Royal Australian Air Force, the exercise is designed to enhance regional security and to promote close ties across the Indo-Pacific. It features simulated threats for both day and night flights. Germany has deployed six Eurofighter typhoons and support aircraft to the exercise. According to an expert, these fighters are signs that Europe is recognizing that the challenge from the Chinese regime is now showing a greater response to issues beyond European security. Still to come, the Chicago Air and Water Show returns for the first time since the pandemic. Two million people came out to see the show despite bad weather. Find out more right here at NTD News. Planes dove, dipped, looped, and roared through the Chicago sky as the city's air and water show made its post-pandemic return in spite of some bad weather. The show featured the Navy's Blue Angels flying team as well as the Army Golden Knights parachute team. F-22 fighter jets roared overhead and the P-51 brought a piece of World War II history to the city. Spectators packed the viewing grounds below high and low-flying planes. They came out undeterred by the threat of rain and storms that hovered in the weekend forecast. A shower brought Saturday's festivities to a temporary halt and also delayed the start of Sunday's festivities, even knocking some events off the schedule. But the audience in attendance was around 2 million. That's comparable to the last full show held in 2019. The Chicago Air and Water Show's website says it's the largest free show of its kind in the United States. You may have heard his name before, and you definitely know his music.
Film composer John Williams turned 90 years old earlier this year, and the Boston Symphony Orchestra held a celebration for him last night. He had the honor of leading the musicians in his famed The Raiders March from the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Williams also composed the scores for all nine Star Wars films, the first three Harry Potter films, and Superman, along with many others. Other artists who took part in last night's festivities included cellist Yo-Yo Ma, singer and guitarist James Taylor, and saxophonist Branford Marcellus. John Williams was the Boston Pops conductor from 1980 to 1993 and now holds the title of Conductor Laureate. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.